Hey, it's Michael, and welcome to another podcast episode. Before I get into today's episode, we wanted to make an offer to you. If you go to firmsconsulting.com, you will see a pop-up or you'll see a place to add in your email address or you can register on the Firms Consulting website. If you register onto that website, you get put into an exclusive list. And what you get in that exclusive list is samples of the content we have available to FC Insiders. So that said, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Hey, Mark, it's great to have you on the show. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me on Strategy Skills. Okay, so we have a lot to discuss. It's been a big year for M&A. And according to Kim Posner, the head of um, Investment Bank at Goldman Sachs, he thinks it's going to be an even bigger year this year. So I want to get straight into it because we have a lot of exciting things to talk about. When the dust is settled and the $5 trillion odd dollars of deals have been integrated, do you think shareholders are going to be happy? So that's a good question. Uh, I'm not a soothsayer. So all I can talk about is what we've studied and you know what we've found, not just in the book, but in past studies that 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 I've done. Um, let me start out by by saying that this old statistic that you still see cited that seventy to ninety percent of deals yes. fail, we, we got to get rid of that. I, I don't know where that evidence ever came from. Um, even back when I was studying the deals of the eighties, as a eighties and early nineties, as a doctoral student at, at Columbia Business yes. School. You know, even then, um, it, the, the, the worst, it was 65-35, 65% negative marker reactions, 35% positive. So, and it's gotten slightly better over, over time. And so I would say it's maybe 60-40. Um, uh, you could even say 50-50. But I mean, you know, the, the old statistic that, that the vast majority of deals fail, we, we just got to get rid of that. So... If we extrapolate, it's possible it could be, again, 50-50. You know, just based on, uh, well, yeah, I would say, again, I'm not a soothsayer, but just based on the evidence where we're, it's it's like a coin flip. Okay, so before I go into my follow-up question, I read your book, The Synergy Solution, and I noticed the language you used is, you said less than 50% of M&A deals ultimately deliver their promised value. So... More than 50% is delivering value, but not their promised value. Oh, sure. And that, that gets to the heart of the, the, the challenge. That, that, absolutely, yeah. So based on what you've seen and best practice research, why do you think this happens? So uh, let me just square something you, you, you said about that they create. So we, we also have to say that uh, Mergers do create value at the at the sort of the macroeconomic yes. level. You know, when you add the gains to the sellers and the gains or losses losses to the buyers, it's okay. a positive number. So um, we we shouldn't have any sort of major policy uh, decisions about it that somehow M and A is bad. It it creates value overall. The the issue is uh, when does it and when does it not create value for the buyer or the acquirer? Yes. Um, so that said. Uh, the question you asked, why, why do I think that less than 50% of deals fail to deliver value for the acquirer? Um, let me start at a very high level, and then we can sure. get down into specific. But we start out with the presumption, number one, that capital is luxurious and it's expensive to touch. And there are smart things to do with capital, and there are less smart things to do with capital. Uh, and the second one, the, again, high-level um, starting point is that M&A is different. It's a different type of capital investment. Uh, you know, you pay the full price up front before mm-hmm. you even get a chance to touch the wheel. So that cost of capital clock and that capital starts ticking right on day one, whether, yes. whether or not you're ready to, de- to deliver. And uh, uh, number two, when you pay a premium, uh, you're creating a brand new business performance problem that never existed before. And no one ever expected or the target would have been selling at that price in the market. And so let me give you a simple example. I think this is important and it sets the stage to which original question was. But imagine you're looking at a, a target and I'm going to keep this simple. Imagine sure. you're looking at a target that's trading in the market at a billion, billion dollars market value, equity market value. And it has, say, 40 million of net operating profit, profit after tax, no PAT, 40 million. And so if we capitalize that at a 10% cost of capital, we would say we had a current operations value. In other words, if performance never improved, it's worth about yes. $400 million. 
So it's trading at a billion. So we have current operations value of 400 million. That means we have $600 million of expected growth or growth value. So if I go and I pay a typical 30% premium for that billion dollar company or $300 million premium, what have I done? I've just tacked on $300 million to that growth value because it doesn't exist yet. Yes. So I now have a company that's got $400 million of current operations value, but now $900 million of future growth value. Which needs to be that's, created. Well, yeah. And you don't want to mix those up. You don't want yes. to confuse synergies, which are you know, if but for the deal. You don't want to create these, confuse or mix up these synergies with the value that was already expected by investors. I want to clarify something for the audience, because I think the yeah. point you're making is important here. You're saying that the premium is almost new business that doesn't exist yet. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah. So what you're referring to is that when you when you pay a premium, depending well, it's on not the, expected. Let's just say it's not so expected. When you pay a premium, the bigger the premium is, you, you've always got to manage the acquisition as the existing business and based on the value you expect to create, and then the new value you need to create to compensate for the premium you paid. Uh, yeah. Otherwise, think of it like an economic balance sheet. If I, you know, pay um, if I pay that three hundred million. And I'm really only going to get $200 million uh, of value out of it. Well, yes. you got to keep that economic balance sheet balanced. So the acquirer loses $100 million of value. Yes, it's interesting. I've spoken to many CEOs, and I don't think they look at it that way. Uh, how do they look at it? Because, well, my background is the resources, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're buying a copper company, there's not a lot of additional businesses you can create from copper besides selling more at a higher premium. Oh, I see what you I, I see what you're getting at. Yeah. So um, it doesn't necessarily have to come from new business. It can come from cost cost reduction programs. Okay. So th think of think of synergies can be, and again, I'm going to keep this at a high level, um, but it's either from cost reduction or revenue enhancements. And so uh, there are plenty of deals that where the deal gets paid for from cost reductions. But there again, I got to tell you. You don't want to mix up synergies from all rich from from ongoing cost reduction programs that might be in place. Yes, you want to, you don't want to mix those up. So in in sort of consulting terms, we use we often use the term "What's your base case?" Yes, like, what do you already expected to do? And so you have your trajectory of growth, um, and then you overlay the synergies on top of that. So base case and overlays. So let's break down synergies for the audience here. What would be the big buckets of synergies? Well, like I just said, it, it could be uh, cost reduction. You don't need two world headquarters, for example. Yes. Um, so um, cost reductions on, on one hand, how, how do you make the businesses more efficient? Is there, you know, again, at a high level, are there scale opportunities uh, from a bigger business? Uh, and then on the revenue side, what are you doing for customers? How are you serving customers in a way you couldn't serve them before on either side and in ways that competitors can't easily replicate? I'm familiar with the list, and I think the audience knows the list. Yeah. I think the question I'm trying to get at here is, if most CEOs know this, this is not okay. new information. So why are so many not succeeding at it? Ah, so that's a great, uh, so that's a great um, question. So uh, I think there are uh, multiple reasons, and they start at the very beginning. I'll, I'll just keep this sort of simple. Uh, if the strategy wasn't clear, and we can talk more about what, sure. what we mean by strategy, because I think it's strategy and culture and transparency are those words that mean different yes. things to different people. But if the strategy wasn't clear, that is how you were going to create additional value, that's not clear. And then you didn't do the proper diligence to test those presumptions, um, either from a cost perspective or a revenue perspective in the market. And so then you overpay for the deal. Um, so now you're kind of behind seven to nothing in the first inning. Yes. And so then you, you announce the deal to markets, you get a negative market reaction. And, uh, and then you, you don't do the kind of planning you need to do sign to close. So you're, you're, since you overpaid, you're assigning nonsensical synergy targets to work streams. Yes. They're supposed to come back with those synergy plans and milestones and early indicators and all, all those. And, uh, employees are unsure of their future, their roles and their future in the new organization. And then those work streams don't do the planning they need to do to, 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 
to develop work plans to get to some sort of end state vision for each function or business. And then you get to close and uh, people are vibrating in place. And then we'll ultimately blame it all on, we didn't manage the cultures right. Okay, that's a good overview. Just for the audience, we using the word work streams, we're referring to work streams, activities of work to see through the integration after the acquisition, common consulting term. So I'm just mentioning that for the audience. It, it, it's a great point. Let me put it in context. Think of uh, the, the structure you should launch immediately after announcement. And this is where a lot of companies waste a lot of time after announcement, um, just putting together their integration, yes. their, their IMO or their integration management office. And think of the structure of an IMO. It's both a top-down and bottom-up structure. So at the top, you have the steering committee, you have the actual integration management office, which are pretty senior leaders from both sides who know the businesses and have gravitas. And at, at the bottom of the structure, you have the work streams, HR, marketing, yes. uh, finance, tax, um, you know, a number of work streams. And then there are cross-functional work streams that cut across the functions, like organizational design, synergy planning, the employee experience, and day one readiness. So yeah, when we talk about work streams, we're talking about all those, uh, all those work streams or streams of work, whether it's in the functions or across the functions, uh, that are going to be assigned, uh, assigned targets. Excellent. So coming back to your answer, you mentioned that things can go wrong if the strategy is not correct, if you overpay, pay a premium, if you mismanage the announcement, and mm -hmm. then if you manage the integration incorrectly. So you've categorize those four areas where things could potentially go wrong. Is that right? Well, and I would add to that the diligence part. Uh, the due diligence. Okay. That, that, that's right. Because um, diligence is often viewed as something to make acquirers comfortable or reach a go or no-go decision. When in fact, diligence is about, uh, well, you're testing presumptions from strategy, but uh, the outcome of diligence is inputs to the valuation model or testing the assumptions in the valuation model. and the other output of diligence is your early integration roadmap. I mean, yes. you know, once, once a deal goes live, that's when things start going fast. You know, there's thousands of non-routine decisions that yeah. have to get made in a very short period of time. Um, and so, you know, what, what we'll probably talk about later is that uh, post-merger or post-close is the wrong time to do pre-merger planning. When and is so, the best time to do it? In well, when you're developing your M&A strategy. That's okay, the so there's a lot of interesting questions. I'm going to unpack each of them, Mark, so the audience yeah. can follow, okay? Sure. Because what you're saying makes a lot of sense for me, but I want to make sure the audience gets the right kind of information so they can do things differently on Monday morning. Mm. So let's start with the first thing. I was speaking to the CFO of one of the largest automotive companies in the world. Mm -hmm. And every single company in that sector is doing deals in electric vehicles sure. and AI. Now, if everyone's doing deals and everyone's paying a premium, someone has to fail because not everyone can grow. Someone has to be losing market share. So the, the discussion I had with him is that every company in that sector is paying some premium to get into electric vehicles or develop the capabilities for EV sure. and the same for AI. So everyone's paying a premium, but surely not everyone can grow their market share. Now, in this kind of market where it seems that everyone's doing deals, mm -hmm. how do you know, what are some of the things you've seen smart CEOs do or the advice you give them to make sure the strategy is sound? Because that was the first block you listed. Yeah, uh, this is a big one, maybe the biggest, actually. And, you know, I started doing this work more than 20 years ago. Um, and one of the things that we'd often see in consultants' notes was, how did this deal ever get there? Like, why are they looking at this? Yes. And um, so the common problem, and you definitely see it during merger waves, is that companies are, are reactors. I mean, think, let's start at the beginning. How do you get a merger wave? Well, or, or even as an economist might look at it, you know, a big concentration of M&A activity. It's that companies are starting to do things they weren't doing before. So it's fear of missing out. Well, it's, it's reacting. So what, just like the, the story you told her, the, what's even more common today when there's been an increase in the number of big deals, um, a big deal gets announced in the industry, 
all the bankers go after the other other companies in the yes. industry and they say you have to act pretty quickly you're going to be le left without a dancing partner and so that's just that's what reactors do is they react versus being what we call um, in the book uh, a prepared acquirer or prepared always on acquirer you should on a regular basis uh, look at the deals that your competitors are doing because companies signal their strategic intent through m a uh, and there's a there are lots of places you can do deals. You know, not every business you have has earned the right to do M&A. So, um, you know, right at the very beginning, what's the role that M&A is going to play in our growth? Is it 10 percent, 20 percent, 30 percent? You know, what uh, what's the role of M&A, and what are the most important deals that we need to, we need to pursue over the next 12 to 18 months? Uh, the most important pathways, uh, the, and then along those pathways, what are the most important deals? So it should be pretty difficult for someone to bring you a deal you haven't thought about before you've prioritized it. And other deals get done. If you look at the most active acquirers, they may only close 10 to 20% of the deals on their watch list. Yes, because they have an intent of what they want to do. They know, they, they know what they want. And I've been through this, this sort of process many times. And it's, it's really tough because you have to make choices. Nobody likes to give up choices. And that, that's what M&A strategy ultimately is about, to become prepared you have to make choices about the assets or sets of assets that are most important, that you believe are the most important. And you can start doing that diligence uh, right in your M&A strategy phase. If you think there's new offerings you're bringing in the market, you can test that. All the answers are in the market. Um, and so that, um, at, you know, at a high level, that's where M&A strategy starts, which is what's the most important, what are the most important assets we need? We're either going to exploit capabilities or we're going to close capability gaps. So if I'm hearing you correctly, the way you're thinking this through is that when you go in to advise a client and you look at a deal they want to do, the first question you ask is, why are they doing the deal? Or are they doing this deal because they are following someone in their sector? Yeah, I mean, I, the, the, the simplest question is, what, why, were, why, did, why didn't you look at this six months ago when the market, when the, the market was 20% uh, lower? Yes. Okay, that's very good. I like that. So as you said, that's the biggest part, because if you do the wrong deal, it doesn't matter how you close it, it's not going to create the value you intended for it to create. Well, all those other things have to go right. I mean, yes. Um, you know, uh, when you when you react to a deal, think of it like this, I'll put it in sort of academic terms, because it's, it's pretty important. Uh, reactors are playing this constant game of not to lose, right? They'll the deal comes across the table, they put together a team, they got two weeks to three weeks to look at something, and then it's a go or no go decision. Um, but in, in the process of doing that, they've increased the odds of false. So they're trying to avoid false positives. But what they've done is they've, uh, they've jacked up the risk of false negatives. That is ruling out a universe of other opportunities that may have yes. been better had they considered it. And you know, one of the things we, we, we find in an early stages of an M&A strategy exercise, a couple of weeks in, is you'll find CEOs or head of corporate development will say, I didn't realize there were so many companies out there. And they may have looked at yes. some of these, but it's just the realization that there's a universe of opportunities, which means you have choices to make. It could be size. I mean, at the highest level, it's size and maybe geography. And then it becomes more and more fine-grained issues uh, the longer that a company, that company, the targets stay on your list. You'll be developing profiles as you go because you know, you, you won't know all the things you need to know when you start one of these processes. Um, but as you go, you'll be able to dig deeper into those companies that remain. And so at the end, you have a watch list with pretty detailed profiles of the companies that are most important to you. Now, but this presupposes the, you know, the CEO, the board, and whichever team is running this in the company has taken the time to create this deal flow structure. Mm -hmm. Yes. And obviously that's an ideal situation, but for many companies, they are reactive. What do they do if they're in a reactive position where they haven't done this, but all the good deals are being taken off the table? Do they step back and reassess things or do they say, okay, we know what we want to do, let's react? Well, I think you're almost giving the answer to the, well, you, you, you see the struggle that's in your question. If you've yes. trapped yourself into being a reactor, uh, it's very difficult not to react. Yes. You know, one, uh, if, if you haven't decided the most important deals that you want to pursue over the next year or two, and you're not regularly refreshing that pipeline and reevaluating as, as uh, a competitor may do something on your watch list, 
then you've trapped yourself in, into reacting. And then it takes a lot of discipline to take that step back. So coming back to due diligence, we spoke about strategy. There was a good discussion. Due diligence. You made a point earlier where you said the post-merger planning should be done in the due diligence stage. Did I hear you correctly? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You want to elaborate on that? Sure. Um, so let's take it from a cost perspective. Uh, so think of in the diligence stage, you're either developing the inputs to your evaluation model or you're, um, you're testing the assumptions that someone's, someone's put into that model. And uh, the way I put it is, um, and, and we do this at the Synergy Solution, sure. uh, the assumptions that go into evaluation model, until you pay it, they're just assumptions. But once you yes. pay it, they're promises. Or once you announce it, they're promises. And so um, let's just, you know, on the cost side, you have to think about what are the synergies, what are the dissynergies. So for example, let's say you, you think you could, you could save X million dollars by closing a world headquarters. You may need to, that, that's great, that'd be a cost savings, but there may be one-time cost to do it. And you may have to take on additional floors, let's say in your current world headquarters, that's more expensive. So, you know, it's things like that. And so what, what would that roadmap look like? How fast is that gonna get done? Is it gonna get done the first six months, first year? when you're gonna incur those one-time costs, you can start doing a roadmap for these major cost reduction initiatives. So you know, what are the quick quick ones that you can get? What are the ones that are gonna to have to go in stages? Um, what are the, what are, are, are there gonna be interdependencies across some of these cost reduction work streams? What are the one-time costs? And, um, and what are the areas that, that are gonna require the most attention? Like if you if you think there's significant synergies from consolidating your ERP systems, um, you know what what are the one-time costs to do it? How long is it going to take? What are the interdependencies along the way? So that should be done. That that early integration roadmap should be done. And think think of how important this is. That should really be done before you announce the deal because when you announce the deal, investors are going to give you a forecast of what they think. Yes, immediately. And, yeah, and if, if you don't have a plan, if you don't project uh, the credibility of having a plan in place so that you can kick off the sign to close planning immediately after announcement day. And remember, this is moving really quickly. Three weeks yes. before you're doing this diligence, you're gonna announce it, you're in the sign to close planning the next day. So, you know, without some sort of early integration planning uh, or an early integration roadmap, you're basically starting from scratch after announcement. But let's dig into this a little bit deeper, right? So my experience advising companies on strategy, M&A, and so on, and even talking to executives today, most of them don't have the luxury of doing it. They feel they're under pressure, and even though they want to do the post-merger planning during the due diligence, they never really get to it. So in those situations, it's hard to comment on how to manage it, but in those situations, in your research, have you seen that companies who do the post-merger planning perform better? Well, think of it this way. If you're not doing that, how are you putting numbers in your valuation model? I mean, if you don't know what those numbers represent or the activities that are gonna drive those numbers, what, what, are you, what are you putting in your valuation model? Let's unpack it because maybe you're using the terminology differently because I think one of the things for the audience is we're gonna have people in the corporate environment who are listening mm -hmm. to this and they use the word post-merger planning different from consultants like me and yourself. Okay. So when you refer to post-merger planning, that's the entire implementation to realize the benefits. That's correct. I agree with that. Okay, but I agree with everything you're saying, but I want to make sure the audience understands where we're coming from because people in corporate don't speak the language we speak. So if you're pushing through a deal in two to three weeks, it's sometimes hard to get the detail number. So sometimes you have to present some kind of top-down version of this is what you're saying. Well, let's, let, let, let's try to keep terms straight. So yeah. what I'm thinking of, and I've done this, well, hundreds of times, uh, in the diligence process, and that, that is, this is before you've announced the deal, I should have a pretty good idea of what that roadmap of performance improvements look like. What's going to happen in the first three months? What's going to happen in the first six months? The first nine months? Some, um, uh, if you're consolidating ERP systems, that could take as long as eighteen months. But I have to have some idea of what's coming first. Okay, so this is the important point I want to make. So when I'm used top down, you're using the word "some idea" of what is coming first. 
So we use we may be using top down and bottom up. Yes. Top down is what you typically get in evaluation that's coming from the outside. Um, you get the met it this we see it over and over again. It's this the magic 10 percent magic 10 percent cost reduction. And where that originally came from is if you think of your if you think that uh, 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 the addressable cost base is maybe a third of your cost base and you can save a third of a third of that a third of a third is roughly 10 percent you know so uh the top down are these are these sort of function by function numbers that somehow yes. somebody comes up with outside the sort of scale of the benefit well yeah and they can come from benchmarks as well you can compare the uh, you know your your cost structure versus top performing firms in the industry you know the top 75 percent or top 50 percent and you can you know you can do these, but those are that's that's a top those are top down numbers. Bottom up is when you you have access to the data room and you can look at these companies function by function, and then you build up a, a bottom up model from the actual numbers. And you know you may get to that same ten percent that was driven top down, yes. but you'd be surprised at how different the numbers are by function when you're building up a bottom up model. And one of the one of the um, things that we think we believe is very important. In diligence is that you compare those top-down assumptions to your bottom-up numbers by function. Well, that's the point I was trying to drive at. Is that yeah. so? You so say in the due the... diligence, it has to be both the top-down and bottom-up needs to be done in that phase. Uh, that's 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 what we do. Okay, makes sense. Perfect. So I want the audience to understand that so that they can think through how they roll this out in Monday morning. So moving to the announcement of the deal, what are the best practices for that stage? So that's a big question, and uh, and this is what I think is one of the crown jewels in in our book. Um, think of announcement day as um, serving three important functions. Yes. Uh, preparing for it is your last stop in diligence. Uh, you know, so preparing for announcement day, you're trying to answer the question: uh, Am I going to give investors reasons to buy my shares or sell yeah. my shares? Right. So. Think of it as the last stop in diligence. Second is your uh, investor presentation, your conference calls, any press releases you do, any roadshows you do. Um, you're creating communications that are fodder for all stakeholders. So customers are listening to you, regulators are listening to you, suppliers, obviously investors, employees are listening to you. So think of announcement day as the sort of the zenith of attention you're gonna get on a significant deal, deal that, could, that could really affect the share price. Um, as uh, it's fodder for everyone else's diligence. And the, the third, and this is very important um, because culture is so important in M&A, we, we believe culture starts an announcement. You know, just the way your the investor reactions set a tone that uh, the organization is going to have to live with, um, you're setting a tone for employees. And so the words that you say, um, they're listening to because think of it, you're you're bumping them down their hierarchy of needs. Yes, you know, they're minding their own business. You know, they're all set. They have a you know they have sort of a career in mind and a future in mind, and you you've bumped them down from self-actualizing down to safety needs. They're worried. Do they have a job? Right, benefits going to change. And, yes, you, know, you have to address those concerns uh, very very early on. And you know if you don't have answers. You have to time box it. So if you say we're announcing the new, let's just say, organizational structure in four weeks, you got to do it in four weeks. If you say we'll have answers to your benefits questions, you know, next date, have it on next day. You're, as one of one of our colleagues uh, says, is you're borrowing trust you haven't yet earned, and that starts on announcement day. Okay. So in terms of the rollout of the announcement, right? You've mentioned the different stakeholders, and you've rightly talked about the anxiousness that employees of the acquired company or the companies being merged will feel. Is it a sequence in terms of who you reach out to first that works best? I, I wouldn't say there's a, a, a sequence per se. And we can talk about like the actual questions you're trying to answer, especially for, for investors. But um, I would say that number one, you've got to formally define and document the deal thesis and yes. key messages to all stakeholders. Um, you have to define those stakeholders. You've got to collaborate with your external communications um, and your and your communications channel. And you would have to establish timing and presence of senior executives uh, who people want to hear from. Yes, that makes sense. And in terms of 
let's assume the deal's done, everything's closed, regulator approvals, shareholder approvals, all done. What are the best practices for the actual integration process? Well, I'll go back to what I said earlier that, uh, and sorry, hopefully we keep our terms straight, but when, when, when I think of post-merger, I think post-close, just, just what you're yes. saying. If you've done the planning right, if you, you if you used your time and diligence and the sign to close period, which can be as short as a couple of months to six months, you know, or more if they're regulatory issues, if you've done that uh, work right, then post-close or post the actual merger should be a period of transitions. It's not like you show up at close and start executing. Yes. Um, it really should be a period of transitions. And in the Synergy Solution, we go over five major transitions. Uh, the first one is that IMO structure, that integration management office that you created, this temporary living, breathing structure, it has to go away. <laughs> so these work streams that sit under it have to graduate. So they don't have to go to any more IMO meetings. Um, so you have to have a graduation process of how you leave that IMO structure. For the audience, just to clarify for the audience, graduate to what? Oh, a business as usual. Okay, that's very important, right? Because we're using consulting terms, not everyone. Yes, has sorry. Yes, so graduating to business as usual, you're no longer part of the IMO structure. You don't have to go to any IMO meetings. That the targets are now built into just ongoing executive plans uh, and their own goals. Um, and uh, so that's that's one major transition. The uh, the second major transition is the work you've done in organizational design and picking the leaders at maybe down to the second or third level that you've uh, that you'll announce right around uh, close, especially your L2 and L3. Um, uh, that organizational design work now has to go through the organization. So now you have to have you have to go through talent selection and workforce transition. Okay, so uh, that's a trans point the people to run things. Well, um, all those procedures and uh, the the documentation that um, that all um, functions and businesses will follow has to flow through. So you're not getting yourself into uh, into any trouble. You have to pay attention to DEI goals um, and you know, et cetera. So, and then the workforce transition. So people may be moving into new roles. You have to make sure they're supported. Uh, do they have the training programs in place to to do that new role? Some Basically, people have to know very quickly, are they going to be affected or not? And if they're going to be affected, uh, how do they be effective in those in those new roles? So that's where the knowledge transfer of people, people that may yes. be leaving. We have to make sure we, tra we transfer those knowledge to uh, people that may be stepping into that, that role or a new role. So that's a second major transition. The third major transition is all the planning you did around synergies, the, you know, the, the individual initiatives. And I should tell you that it's usually 10 to 20 major initiatives drive the vast majority of the synergies, but those synergy, those, those, those basic initiatives or those major initiatives have to break down to projects, individual projects and milestones. So all the work you did pre-close now has to transition into tracking and reporting. So yes. how are we gonna, how are we gonna track those? What are the major milestones? And then that's where you introduce those early indicators. So for example, if you're, this is something I've been involved with in a couple of deals in the last few years. Um, a major insourcing initiative where they had outsourced production. One was a cosmetics company where they had outsourced fragrance production. One was a toy company where the target had outsourced its toy production. And um, those are big initiatives. You got to hire designers. You have to um, you have to order new new equipment. You may have to redesign your facilities. Uh, you have to sunset the old outsourcing agreements. And so you want to make sure you have early indicators so that you know you're on track. You don't want to just miss a milestone. There should be early indicators, whether are you hiring people? How have you ordered the new machines? Yes. That, that, yes. that sort of thing. So, and um, that's number three. The, the fourth big one for us is that, you know, if you think about revenue synergies, a lot of that work is going on in the clean rooms because it's competitively sensitive information. Yes. So you, you leave the clean room. Now you have to go into the real customer experience and growth. And that's where you're putting in place your, your new go-to-market strategy. I mean, if you're cross-selling, uh, if you're bringing new offers, you know, new, new bundled offers to market through your new combined sales force, um, that's a major transition. And then the, uh, the fifth one that we, that we write about is um, all the work you've done on the employee experience, anticipating 
changes that are going to happen for employees. Now it's the actual change management and building a new culture, how work gets done. Um, so I, I guess to, to put a sort of bow around it, post-close execution or you know, after the deal closes, it really should be a period of transition from the planning you did to these, in our view, these five major transitions. Yeah, they make a lot of sense. They seem practical. That's how I've seen it work in the real world. So let's step back out and talk through some uh, what I call quirks in the system, right? Sure. What happens in a situation where you're trying to close a deal in something like three weeks and you don't have the time to do everything using the best practice you laid out? How have you seen those things play out? What advice would you give executives in that situation? Well, um, it's a it's a very good question. It's a very practical question. Uh, in essence, you may end up doing. Uh, we I'm saying this a little tongue in cheek, but it's what we call it. You may end up having to do post deal diligence. You know the work that yes. you would have done. You know there's there's <laughs> no short. Yeah. yeah, I mean there's no there's no shortcuts to this. I mean you're always testing issues. You know in the in the market. You know um, with your outreach with customers and what they want and they're on. The, you're always doing that anyway, but. Often you're going to have to do the work that you should have done uh, pre-close. You'd have to do it post-close. There's no there's no shortcuts. Yes, and I'll come back to a point a discussion we we're having earlier because there's an important point I wanted to make. We're talking about bottom up and top down, right? Right. And what I've seen in my experience is that most companies are not really good at the bottom up work. So they're pretty good at the top down work, but they normally need to bring in consultants to advise them on the bottom up work. Is that what you've also seen? If they haven't done it before, sure. Yes. Yeah. I mean, if, if, if there are plenty of experienced acquirers that have their own integration offices and heads of integration planning. So if they haven't done a significant transaction before, then consultants can be very helpful because we do this over and over again. So we have the structure and the, we have the, um, the tools that, that can accelerate. You know, we always talk about accelerating synergies and accelerating the planning. So, you know, we have the organizational visualizer tools. We have the, the large program management tools um, and echoes contract management tools. So, you know, we bring a lot of um, tools that are very helpful. So that it's, it's generally consultants can be very helpful where, and this is what we often hear. Uh, well, we haven't done anything this big before. Yes. And so, you know, in some of these big deals and we've, We've counted them. I mean, there's as many as 10,000 non-routine decisions that have to get made. Everything as large as, you know, which ERP system are you going to stay with or which world headquarters are you going to use, right down to, you know, what's the quality of the coffee? Someone's, someone's got to make that decision somewhere. Yes. So let's just step in this direction a little bit. Now, we're both going to be maybe a little bit biased here and, and because we'll, we'll have a certain answer here. But what role would consultants play that would add value versus the capabilities of an organization? I'm not debating the value we bring, mm -hmm. but I want to lay it out for the audience so they understand, because I think some people may have experience working with consultants. Others may have done it only from a corporate side. Mm -hmm. But I want to talk through the role consultants would play here. Well, my view is that uh, we're advisors. So we've seen deal after deal after deal after deal, whether it's, uh, and you're talking about post-close post management or, or, or post-merger. It could be any side of it. It could be the strategy side, due yeah, diligence. So we, yeah, so we've done this before, you know, and, and uh, the older partners like myself, I'm going to turn 60 next, next month. Um, we've been in these situations from M&A strategy and diligence and valuation and announcement day, pre-close planning and post-close execution. We've done it many times. So. Um, I, I, I feel, and I'll use the word feel, mm -hmm. um, like in, in, in my gut, what, uh, what senior executives who haven't done something this big before, they're, they're, they'll often ask the question, so what have you seen in your experience? Yes. What have you seen the best ways to do this? And so yes. we're, you know, not only are we bringing a structure and a process and tools, and, um, uh, but we're also helping them uh, make the big decisions they need to make early on so that the teams aren't fighting it out. You know, you don't have the two IT teams fighting out which, which ERP system that, that they should go with uh, for six months. And, uh, you know, they're not fighting over templates and that, and that kind of thing. So, uh, but we're, um, uh, we're bringing them a level of comfort that, uh, that helps them along the way. Yeah, that makes sense because I remember that one of the terminology we used to use is 
an executive asks the question, we would say what we typically find, you know, WWTF. So it's a common way of bringing past knowledge in. Listing out the best practices, and you know, you've done a great job of talking me through how Deloitte manages this. Assuming now that every company can learn from the best practices laid out in your book and your work and so on, is it helpful for them to have this permanent structure in place to be vetting deals, to have a dedicated deal team, to have a dedicated due diligence team and so on in place if they see a pipeline of deals coming down the line? You're asking a pretty broad question. Um, and th the way I'll answer it is, uh, if you think you're gonna be very active, uh, well, I would just, I, I, I would put it simply as, you need to make sure you have the right people doing, um, uh, doing what they need to do at each stage of the process. If you're going to be very active. Oh, or even if you're gonna do something significant. You know, what, I'll start out at the beginning. One of the simple things we, I know your question is about should they have dedicated teams and and that and that sort of thing. Um, I, I start out with with uh, with M and A strategy process just to just to um, yes. sometimes it's in the pitch, sometimes it's in the in the execution. I say, what are the twenty largest deals you might consider doing? What are the twenty biggest deals that a banker might bring you that you might consider doing in in your business or maybe it's an adjacency? And I and I say I can tell you right now if you've made the, the, the big choices, probably only three to five of those are going to be deals you should be even be looking at. So, you know, do you need a dedicated team to do that? Not necessarily, but you have to know what it is that you want and how you're going to create value. So whatever you need to do to, to do that. Now, when you get to diligence, you're going to want to make sure you have the teams that know how to do bottom-up cost energy diligence or know how to do commercial diligence in the market. Know, testing presumptions around the revenue line. Um, so when you call it a dedicated team or people know what they're doing. Circling back, right? You spoke about what makes M&A a different kind of investment. Why do you think CEOs and boards are deploying capital through M&A? What's driving M&A at the moment? Well, um, I'll go back to M&A strategy. And our starting point is you look at the growth value that's in your share price, you look at your organic trajectory, you look at your aspirations and you see where the gaps are. And so M&A can be an answer, can be one answer to closing those gaps. What you've laid out is the rational, logical thought process Deloitte and yourself uses to determine if M&A is the right fit for a company to meet its growth aspirations. So you've answered that part, but the question I was asking is, what has driven this boom in M&A? Oh, well, one of the things we know is that M&A is correlated with rising stock markets. You know, over the last 40 years, um, you know, what what drives it? I, you know, uh, like I said, I'm not a uh, I'm not a soothsayer, but uh, uh, M&A happens to be correlated with rising, rising markets. So and, and I think there's a reason for it, because, you know, um, even if you make a mistake, you know, if you don't go back and industry adjust or peer adjust yes. returns, you know, we talk about relative total shareholder return or RTSRs, those are peer adjusted. Your stock price will likely go up from that point, um, even if your industry adjusted returns are poor. So, yes. you know, yes. it's uh, rising stock markets bring optimism. And especially if a significant amount of the purchase price is with stock, it means sellers are willing to take your stock. Am I correct in then saying, the optimism of the market is sometimes masking a bad M&A deal? In, in what way? If you have a booming stock market, whereby for some reason the market's just going up and up, sometimes there's an incentive to do a deal because of the enthusiasm in the market. The board and the CEO thinks that the market is going to mark up this deal and the share price is going to go up anyway. Uh, it could. It could. I mean... Think about why, you know, one of the th one of our major findings, and we should talk about the findings a little bit in our study because we did a 24-year study. Yeah, let's do that. Actually, that's a good point. But just to just to maybe segue into it, you know, one of the things that had been found, there's a whole literature on it that stock deals underperform cash deals. And so, you know, you think about what's the signal that a stock deal sends? Well, uh, maybe we're overvalued. When's the best time to issue stock when you're overvalued? Um, and the other signal it sends is if the 
deal was so good, why are we willing to share the benefits uh, that, that you wouldn't be sharing in a, in a cash deal? So um, I, just going back to your question about, do, do I think it's optimism? Yeah, it's def de definitely optimism. Is this finding across all markets and all geographic markets and all industry segments, or is it clustered? So we studied, so there's, first there's a whole literature on this that goes back you know, 20 plus years in, in the academic literature. Uh, but we looked at just to keep it, you know, keep some bounds around things. We, we looked at, uh, only us, uh, both the acquirer and the target had to trade on a U.S. stock exchange. Okay. So that's what we looked at. We also looked at, um, they, uh, the deal had to be at least 10% the size of the buyer so that it had, it had the chance of, of having some material impact on the on the share price, and they couldn't have done another major deal over the course of a year. So you can imagine that brings it down, but it's still a sample, you know, it's a still sample. Yes, you know, and it's still significant, so. Oh yeah, we did, you know, we, we had uh, over 1,200 deals, over $5 trillion of deals, over a trillion dollars of premiums, over 24 years. So we covered uh, three major merger waves over that time. And what and, were the other insights from the book? Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Well, yeah, no, these are, and it's, and we bring this out right up front in the first chapter, and it is one of the, the themes of the book. And that is, again, consistent with prior uh, literature, uh, acquires on average, because whenever we talk about M&A studies, it's always on average, uh, uh, acquires on average underperform their industry peers by a bit. About 60% of deals are met with negative market reactions and 40% uh, with positive market reactions. But that's not really the story. That's kind of like, okay, so what, what, what does that mean? So we start to de-average. And so what we did is we divided companies that, uh, that uh, based on their market reaction, we divided them into two portfolios, get a positive reaction portfolio and a negative reaction portfolio. Because you know, we still hear CEOs and uh, market observers say things like, well, you know, um, stock uh, market reactions don't matter, put it, put it simply. And in fact, they really do. And so when we look at the positive market, the positive reaction portfolio, we track it out over a year. And we went beyond that. But once you start to go out after a year, you get noise, could be yes. other things. But, but um, the, uh, the returns to the positive reaction portfolio are still strongly positive, And the returns to the negative reaction portfolio are still strongly negative. Um, so uh, market reactions matter. But, but even that's not really the, the, the story. Because uh, even that's pretty well accepted in the in the literature now, and that's kind of that, that's actually one of the important parts of our study is it doesn't there's nothing radically like oh my god you found something that you know, nobody nobody yeah. thought but but the next part is what's really important and that is those positive reaction deals that stay positive we call them persistently positive deals they do great and the negative reaction deals that stay negative that sort of confirm those negative expectations they do really badly and the spread of returns between the persistently positive group and the persistently negative group is 60 percentage points. It's huge. That's, that's it's, a significant it's, difference. It's, it's enormous. And, and that's, the, that's, a, that, that's how we start the book because you know, what you want to walk away from that, I would think most people would agree, it's better to start with a positive market reaction than a negative. Now, that doesn't mean that some of the negatives don't turn around or some of the positives don't yes. turn around. But I'll tell you this, two-thirds of deals that start negative stay negative. And if it's a, and for stock deals, it's almost three out of four um, that stay negative. So while a positive reaction is no guarantee of success, a negative reaction is very tough to turn around. And so if you come away from it, now I should say, I've done this sort of study before. I had a cover story in 2002, yes. Business Week magazine on the 90s deals. We found the same pattern before, but I never connected it to the process. And so if you think about it, if, if you want a positive market reaction on announcement day, think of all the work that you would need to have in place to get there. And also so that you can kick off integration planning efforts right after announcement day so that you can deliver. So I have a follow-up question here. This is very interesting. You mentioned that the deals that remain positive and remain negative for a period of one year, so you followed it from one year after the deal. And then you mentioned that after one year, there's a lot of noise and other things happening that could cause influences there. But a lot of the post-merger integration work after the deal closed 
normally that takes more than a year to see through. So have you looked what happens in two and three years? Well, I, in, in my, my first book that came out 25 years ago, uh, which was The Synergy Trap, uh, we went out four years and it, it, um, it was very consistent when you went on in time. In this particular study in the Synergy Solution, we went out a couple of years and about 80%, I, I can't remember exactly whether it's, um, which one was sort, sort of like 83% or 75%, but let's just say roughly 80% of deals in either direction were still positive or negative two years out. And so, you know, the other thing, um, it, you know, think of it like this. Yes, the actual delivery may be in the future, but your that, that, that initial investor presentation and that initial reaction is a forecast of the future. So investors and other stakeholders are looking for information. You know, we, 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 yes. we call it, uh, you know, from, a, from, an, from an employee perspective, it's sort of you want to calm employees and then spark them to, to, to see what the, this combination could look like and then inspire them. Ultimately, we call it calm, spark, inspire, but inspire them to see their futures with the company. From an investor perspective, it's very much inspire, spark, and calm. You know, you inspire them with that initial uh, that initial investor presentation, then you spark them with starting to show results and in, you know describing where these results are going to come from, and then comes the calm of actually delivering on those results. I just want to confirm something so the audience is following us here because it's an interesting discussion. When you say the market perception is negative or positive, you're referring to the share price. That's correct. Yeah. So in other words, what you're saying is that the market's pretty good at judging the value of a deal. Uh, on average, it's it, it, as, as a uh, very well-known finance professor uh, finally admitted about going on 20 years ago, I think we have to accept that the market reaction, and we quote this in the book, is a fairly reliable indicator of how deals will work out. Yeah, because you see it so often. In fact, I saw it the other day where some executive was saying, well, the market reaction is not good, but we believe this will work. Now, I don't know their exact plan, but what you're saying from your finding is the market reaction is a pretty good indicator historically of knowing if a deal is going to add the promised shareholder value. That's right. And if you have a negative reaction, like like I said, some of these turn around. I mean, yes. about a third on average um, turn around. That means you've got work to do, which means you got to get on the road. You have to explain this deal to investors. And we've had clients that start with a negative market reaction and they go on the road and they start explaining where the value is in the deal. Yes. And basically it's, as you mentioned earlier, it's a process of educating the different stakeholders. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. I mean, think of it, think of it like this. We, we put it, we say, what, what are the tests of a good investor presentation? The, the simplest one is, can, am I giving investors something they can track, that they can monitor over time? Like, so going to market with one big fat, you know, $2 billion of cost synergies, nobody can track that. Yeah. So you've got to break it down into where if you look at the, and we outlined several of these uh, in the book, um, look at the level of detail that successful companies give. They're, they're, they're giving investors something they can track where those, the major sources of synergies are coming from. The, um, there are a few things we go through, but the other one I'd say is if you, uh, and you'd be surprised how many um, of these big deals, if you actually capitalize the synergies that they're talking about, if they, at least if they even give a, a timetable, um, they don't add up to the premium. I mean, there's one that we write about in the, in the book, which is patterned off a real, uh, real company. We've disguised the numbers, but they go public. It's a $10 billion premium. They announce $500 million of synergies. They don't say whether they're coming from cost or revenue. There's yes, no timetable yes. from when that's going to happen. But just as, let's just say it was going to start, uh, you know, uh, it was going to start uh, immediately. If you just capitalize the cost synergy number, uh, the, the, the synergy number, it doesn't get you to, um, it doesn't get you to the 10 billion. So this is a very important point because oftentimes when people think about M&A and so on, we focus quite heavily on whether the management team and their consultants and bankers and so on has perfectly calculated the synergy value, the benefits of the deal and so on. But an important point you're bringing up here is that it's important that enough information is given to the people who are going to vote on the deal on the, in the market, basically the investors. 
And if you don't share enough information for them to make the correct assessment, they can vote the deal down. When I say vote the deal down, I mean lower the share price purely because they don't know enough about the value that's supposedly going to be created. Uh, yeah, that's, that's exactly right. Think of this as the, a classic asymmetric information problem. Management knows more about their plans than investors do. Yes. They're reading their signals. Like, do, do, does that team have a plan? And you go back to the, you know, the $10 billion premium with $500 million of synergies. Just capitalize that $500 million at 10%. That's $5 billion. How much do you think the share price went down uh, for that acquire right on announcement? About $5 billion. The, the difference between the capitalized value of the synergies and the, and the premium. And yeah, it's just because they mismanaged the communication. Oh, uh, yeah, that was pretty bad. Um, okay, so. You know, and investors, think of it like this. They see deals every day. They've been, you know, investors, yes. you think about it as a, as a market, you know, um, they do this for a living. So, you know, the, the, the one thing you definitely don't want to do is, is go public with a large premium and a nonsensical synergy number that doesn't, that doesn't get you back to the premium. That's, that's mm -hmm. the, the no-brainer one. Then you wonder how those get out of boardrooms. But the other one is, uh, to the next part, let's just say that economics seem to be there. Are you giving them something they can track over time? So that you can actually report, because look, some of your uh, some work streams or some sources of synergy are going to do better than you thought, and some are going to be less. But you want to be able to make sure that investors have something to track, and definitely don't go to don't go to market one big fat synergy number. Investors, yeah, I mean, just for the audience, I remember using this example once with a client. Is that imagine you have if you're familiar with the reality TV show American Idol, Mark? Sure, sure, of course. So you have the executive team that's doing a deal. As an analogy, they are the person singing. Now, the equivalent of this, of mismanaging the communication is you, you go out on stage and you tell the audience that's voting is, look, trust me, I can sing, so vote. But it's not enough to tell them to trust me. You've got to show them that you can do it, right? Yeah, that's right. Or, or the economic balance sheet takes over. They, they're yes. going to make an assessment based on what you told them. You just read the investor presentation. And uh, you've either given them enough information, they, they, they say that that sounds sensible. Now, if you're an experienced acquirer, then you're, you have a great, you, you have an advantage because you've promised things before and you've delivered. Uh, it's different if you haven't done a, if this is the biggest deal you've ever done, you're deviating from your business model. So you have to explain it even more carefully. Yes. And I think if I'm an executive, or even a consultant listening to this, you know, you've perfectly articulated the importance of having a robust investor relations strategy in place. That's right. And then, and then following up on that over time so that yes. you're, you're able to report the results over time. That's how you calm the markets. That's how you, that's how you calm investors. Yes, because you don't want them to wonder what happened a month after the promise you made. Because, you know, as you say very well in, in the work is that everything's a promise. Once you pay for it, it everything is. is a promise, but now you've got to deliver on the promise and it's, you've got to keep them updated. You can't simply disappear for six months and let the market wonder what's happening. That's absolutely correct. Mark, thank you so much. That was a fantastic discussion. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. I did. And if I could just close with one major takeaway comment, which is sure. think of M&A as an experience. It's an end-to-end -end connected experience. And if you think of M&A that way from the beginning, uh, you greatly improve your chances of success. I like that. And also, it's interesting the way you've broken it down and those findings. And you know, one of the things that stands out in this discussion is that it's so important to keep the stakeholders aligned as often as possible so there are no surprises. That's, that's right. That's and that's right. maybe the biggest takeout here is that when we think about M&A, we always think about deal teams, the CEO executing the deal, getting the buyer on the side and so on. But you've got to keep the people who invested in your business on board throughout so they're not forced to make decisions that are not based on the right data. Oh, that's right. And I would add to that, keeping your employees informed and your customers informed. Yes. Absolutely. Mark, thank you so much. I thoroughly enjoyed that. I'm sure we're going to have you on the show at some point in the future. That's so great. we'll keep you in touch in terms of how things are going to work. But I totally enjoyed speaking to you. I think our audience is going to like your book. I mean, well, I that's great. It was a, love your book. 
Oh, that's well, thank you very much uh, for, for uh, promoting the Synergy Solution. And, and I enjoyed this very much. Take care, Mark. Have a great day. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing, and the only way to get samples of our content is to join the list on firmsconsulting.com. It's the only way also to get access to our unique advanced content that we make available to insiders. So if you want to get a sneak peek of things, test it out, see what's in there, this is the place to go. And finally, I want to thank you again for making us one of the largest podcast channels around the world for careers and for the 2 million downloads and counting.